Well, greetings, friends, and welcome to the Gospel Underground Podcast. We're here for episode 12, Fake News and Truth in the Epistemic Wilderness. We are broadcasting live, well, live for us, from the Power of Change headquarters here in Blacksburg, Virginia. I'm here with my co-host again today, Jesse Fury. What's up, Jesse? What's up? Good to be back. Man, we've had a couple solo episodes the last few months. It's good to be kind of back tag-teaming this thing. Yeah. Yeah, it's good to be back in the shed quarters. We had your boy, man, your your man, your dude. That guy was awesome. Reese, I would have said Rice, but Reese Bizant. Rice. Rice. I might call him Rice, yeah. Yeah, Dr. Reese. And he was Australian, which always makes it sound just a little more intelligent. And a I little, told him that. Oh. I said, you're just like a normal guy, but you're Australian. So I think you're really brilliant. Other than he doesn't like C.S. Lewis that much, but Jed, uh, Jesse pulled a Jedi mind trick where he turned C.S. Lewis upon Reese in the podcast. If you haven't listened to that, uh, leaning into lament with Reese Bizant, got to check that out. We also have back in the studio today one of our friends, and we hope to be a regular guest here on the Underground, Doctor Michael Bure, director of I think it's called At Wireless at Virginia Tech or something of some sorts in the Electrical Engineering Department. Known to us, Jesse Wireless Mike. As wireless Mike, all our mics are plugged in today, but uh, wireless Mike, he's going to be a little unplugged, so we'll be talking about the truth. Mike, thank you for coming. Welcome to the Shed Quarters. Hey, guys. Great to be back. Thanks for having me. It's good to see your pile of notes. I can't wait to see what comes out of this. Yeah, Je- Jesse's got pile his, of handwritten uh, notes. his uh, moleskin cracked open, a few things written down, and Mike brought a stack of prof- professorial papers, I think. His secret files on the truth that he's going to share with us today. Yeah, we those things. yeah there we go. There we go. Well... We just passed Valentine's Day, and I know all of us are... Do you know the year you guys were married? That's an easy one, right? Nin- easy. 19 or 2000? 2003 for me. 2003? 1993. 1993, 1996 for me. So uh, Wireless Mike is our veteran, um, so he's, done, he's had to be more creative because he's had more Valentine's Days. <laughs> uh, did you do anything special or kind of standard fare, high-five your wife? Get the kids off somewhere. Yeah, standard <clears throat> standard fare. We uh, we actually almost never do anything on Valentine's Day, but when, uh, you know when you're romantic, all the days of the week, all the days of the year, Valentine's Day is just another day. Yeah. Just a, just a Wednesday this year. Yeah, it's like a layup. <laughs> yeah, we uh, my my wife decorated the house, put out balloons, not just for me for the kids. She does. Uh, I told her, I said, you know what? I really thank God for you. Because I wouldn't do any of this stuff on any of the holidays, and she makes our kids' lives and our family's life more enriched. Because I, I not that I don't care about it, because I like it. I'm like, oh, this is kind of nice waking up like this, but I would never do it. You know, you know I uh, we started a tradition when when we had a daughter, and I take my daughter out, my daughter Evie out every year for Valentine's Day. So we went out. High level dad skills there. Yeah, man. we went out on Wednesday, and I brought her to work out with me. Which was fun. She loved it. We went to CrossFit. Oh my goodness! Inc. Uh, and uh, she was baptized into the CrossFit was... <laughs> religion. <laughs> That's right. And then we went to uh, we went out to lunch, and we just had fun. It was it was a lot of fun. I got two pink roses for my daughters, one on each of their pillows when they came home from school because. You know, they're, they don't get red roses because that's a little bit, you know, it's under my daughters. But uh, they, I wanted, didn't want a friendship rosy, so I went with pink uh, because, you know, teenage girls. Mike's got some in college. He's got grown-up girls now. It's uh, it's amazing, man, isn't it? It is. It's, uh, you see them as these little toddlers for the rest of their lives, and then they're driving cars and going to college, and kind of happens too fast. Too yeah, fast. my oldest is actually graduating from college this graduating. year. Graduating. And she's at Virginia, right? At the University of Virginia. That's right. 
Congratulations. One less tuition bill that you won't have to pay again. Absolutely. <laughs> I don't care how many contemporary songs they make. I love old school gospel. All right, now we're going to do something here that we do occasionally. We call it take it to church. Take them to church. All right. So, take us to church, Jesse. So I'm going to take us to church. So I'm, I'm a resident uh, pastor. And only pastor in the room, Jesse Fury. Yeah, for yeah, that's yeah, don't and don't forget it. Um, and and so sometimes we'll just we'll take a look in. So, you know, what we like to do here on the podcast is is be like uh, the way we we've we've described it before is the membrane between the church and the culture and the world outside of the church. And so sometimes a lot of times we like to look out and 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 evaluate and, and look at what's going on outside of the walls of the church, but sometimes we want to we want to look in, and so we're peeking in today, and we're gonna we're gonna have a friendly debate. I think it's gonna be friendly, <laughs> a friendly debate between Reed and I about heated, heated debate <laughs> about the value of uh, of the greeting time in a church service. All right, so if you grew up liturgical, maybe known as passing the passing peace. the peace, yeah, right? The peace. So so uh, in our church, what we do is after the first song we that we sing together. We do, uh, we, we do this. So our, our worship leader, our, our, the person who leads our band will say, uh, everyone, please take a few minutes and greet one another in the Lord. Or we'll greet each other, and then we'll get into announcements and more songs. Sometimes, you know, I grew up in a church that was more high church, more liturgical. So we would do it uh, towards the end of the service as a way of passing the peace. Um, and so, what, you know, wherever it fits in the service, I'm going to defend that time. Right here. I'm going to defend it against... The awkward make everyone feel uncomfortable has never been to church time. Go ahead, Jesse. This is not, you, <laughs> You're violating the rules yeah, of debate. Yeah. You can't just jump I'm, I'm in sorry. like that. I, I, I'm si- I've sinned. Yes, uh, go ahead. <laughs> Dr. Mike, do you guys, in your church, do you pass the peace? Do you, have a, do you have a time like this? Not consistently, but typically, yes. Okay. So you're going to be the judge about who who's right today, who, who's truer, who's, who's, who's got right. the best truth yeah. today. Uh, so here's let me just state, make my case for this. All right. So uh, I will admit first that you have to understand what this time isn't. So uh, we've had I've had some conversations with church members and people who've come to church about this time, and uh, and sometimes it's like, well, if this is what our church thinks community is, uh, then yeah. we're in trouble. Of course, this of course is not that time, right? Uh, the, com- the 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 greeting time or the passing of the peace isn't the time where you get to have a deep relationship with somebody. <laughs> so you can't expect that. It's not a substitution for community. It's not a substitution for uh, mission, right? So so this is that's not what you do there. Uh, understand its flaws, okay? So here are the flaws. It's awkward, especially if you're not extroverted. Especially if meeting people makes you sweat and makes you feel uncomfortable, it's it can be awkward. Uh, it can be counterproductive, right? So sometimes this this time opens up, and what it's meant to do is is make people feel at home and feel like they have a they're greeted, but instead some people get left out. So I can you know I want to just I'm going to concede there are flaws to this time. People can feel left out. People can feel even extra alone if nobody talks, nobody to, talks to them, right? They're the one person that nobody talks to during that time. But, but I do want to, here's, here's my case for why it's helpful. Uh, I think it's helpful because what you're doing on Sunday is you're not just worshiping. You're gathering together as a family. 
and you're inviting other people in. It's 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 really like um like if you're having a a meal in your home and you invite some neighbors. You invite your some family members from out of town, some family members from in town and some neighbors and everyone comes over. And if you're a good host, you take the time to make eye contact with people as they come in, to shake hands with people or, or give them a hug or whatever your culturally appropriate way of greeting, you, you do that and you bring them in and you say, hey, we're a family here, come together. Uh, and, and so I think that that's important. I think that's part of why we gather each Sunday and right in this place in the middle of a town. Uh, I also think that, that we can sometimes underestimate how nice it feels for someone to smile Say hi, ask your name, shake your hand, especially for people who don't get that a lot during the week. Uh, and then finally, I want to say this, and, and this is my trump card. You can't beat this, Reed. <laughs> uh, God sent his son in the flesh to be with us. Mm-hmm. I think there's an incarnational element of this, so that we, so we're, we're pushing back against the tide of, I'm going to come as my individual self and consume some product here this morning. Don't bother me. Uh, I want it to be good. I want to hear a good message, sing some good songs, and then I want to go home. We're, we're kind of breaking through that by saying, no, God came in the flesh to us. It was messy. It was awkward. It was uncomfortable, but but it, it was important to be interpersonal. Okay, so, so now the floor is yours. Okay. Well, I'm going to surprise you. Uh, the reasons that my friend gives for this, uh, this awkward, um, forced upon you, non-optional time, um, I, I, I agree with them all. I think, I th- I think the, the aspect of feeling welcome, feeling community, someone caring about you, um, God coming to us, certainly the presence of incarnation, that's why we gather. I just agree with all that. The problems I have it aren't really with the uh, philosophy of it, but really the form. And here's why. Uh, I don't have these written down, so I have to pull these objections out of the air. First of all, uh, you mentioned introverts. If an introvert comes to your church for the first time, the last thing they want is some awkward person coming up to them and talking to them because they don't want to do that, number one. So that time is off-putting just by it existing to introverted people. I, and I'm not introverted. I'm very extroverted. And um, secondly, there are times when you come to the church with, with a headache or you don't feel good, you don't want to talk to people, and you know that that time's coming. And, and the social expectation in that time is... That you smile, say, how you doing? I'm good, you're good. And, and so it kind of lends itself to this kind of inauthenticity in, if you're not feeling like talking to this person. Uh, thirdly, um, there are people that are just not very good, um, gifted by God, personality-wise, at, at greeting people. And so even the approach of a certain kind of person can be awkward. So my preference, I'd say, I'd say, is to have those people like like one of our pastors, Brett Johnson. Brett's great at greeting people, getting their name. He should be doing that. The greeting team ought to be trained not to talk to their friends. Like I recently preached at a church a few months ago, and, and my family got there half an hour early, and nobody talked to us for 30 minutes. They all talked to each other and their friends. So there should be a team that's trained to know if a new person's there, you know, speak to them, get their name. And, and those people should be uh, on that team because they're, uh, they're kind people, they're uh, socially not awkward people because there are social awkward people. And so the culture of a Sunday morning should do all the things that Jesse said without this time where you force upon everyone this kind. Now, 
I'm assuming there's going to be new people there and folks that don't know church and things like that, which, which um, they're used to going to the movies, they're used to going to things, they're used to going to meetings where they're, they're not having to stick a rose on their lapel or stand up, spin around on a baseball bat and say who they are. So I think we can achieve all those objectives without making this awkward time and then uh, bum-rushing uh, the introverts. So let me respond quickly. <laughs> and then we'll, and then we'll, and move, we'll on. move on. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think I, I would agree with most of what you're saying as well. I just think that, uh, that you have. So I think that we make too big of a deal about being awkward. And because the truth is, is that someone that comes to church, they, they have a certain sense that this is going to be different than going to the movies. Yep. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to interact with people. That's part of the deal here, right? I'm, Perhaps. Uh, someone invited me, yep. probably. Uh, there's so, so I think, I think we don't need to be quite so, I don't know. Avoiding of the awkward. Yeah, I think sometimes <laughs> we can say, hey, it, it maybe, maybe it even comes down to saying, hey, I know this is kind of awkward for you guys, but we're going to have three minutes where you, we're going to say hi to somebody here. Yeah. Uh, so I just think, yes, it can be awkward. You can accomplish what what the goal is without that time, but, yep. but I think it's worth it. And I think history's on my side. Okay. <laughs> also, let me just tell a quick parable here that I was thinking about. Um, I took a team to Australia. Uh, this was, this was over 10 years ago and team of Americans. We were there on a mission trip for, for a summer. We got there July 2nd. And I remember we, you know, Australia is pretty similar to America, um, in some ways, but when it's July 4th, similar to Georgia, yeah, wait, I don't get that. They're both penal colonies. Oh. <laughs> okay, so uh, on July 4th, it was so odd. Nobody cared, yeah. right? So w- here we are with our team. Everybody's, you know, we want to do fireworks, hot dogs. Hot and, dogs. Fireworks and-, and so we got invited to this little little uh, house full of Americans. We didn't know them, but they were connected to people we knew, and they were having a 4th of July party. And so uh, it was awkward because they were people we didn't know, right. but there was a certain sense of like home and belonging. And, and, and so really in some ways, that's how a Sunday morning, I, w- I want Sunday morning to be like that. Yeah. There's a, there's a s- certain smell of home to it. And I still think at home, you do everything you can to greet someone, to invite them in and make them feel like they, they could belong here. Amen. And I think the Amen. greeting time can yeah. do that. I think I think that is true for the Christians that call the church their home, and they are seeing people that they're in community with. I think it's really robust. The one concern I have is for the people who uh, are being um, socialized and brought up in a culture that avoids awkward, and they don't want to come back if to do that. And so somehow we have to make that community that's welcoming each other um, open to that person's... Um, uncomfortability, comfortability with the culture so that they actually feel welcomed. And totally agree. Amen. Yeah. And, and let me so just we say, pass the no, piece yes, yeah, we're passing we're right here. My freezing hands. hands. Hey, let me the tell Lord, you more. the Lord be with you. And me. also with you. Uh, one, one last thing I will say is, uh, I will sometimes meet with people who have, who have been to a church or so essentially even introverts want to be greeted, even though they don't maybe want to interact or they want to yeah. retreat. I would far rather have someone say, it was awkward how many people talked to me right. and have someone say, no one talked to me. Right. I just passed through and in and out and nobody said hi. So Right. And I would say, too, that the, the, the people talking to them should happen um, 
and there should be people attentive to those who are kind of standing by themselves and no one's really in, engaging them. Um, I would prefer those people be trained, equipped, and aware because what what time what many times happens is that people just talk to their friends at church, and others are just bystanders, and that that typically can be a problem. Mike, we were too peaceable, weren't we? We we kind of <laughs> we just hugged it out. I think we didn't really fight. But too still, much. who's right? Well, Jesse has power at our church, so we will have it. If I was yeah, a pastor there, <laughs> I would be voting it down. You'd be outvoted. Yeah, it would be. So, if I had a button during the church and I could fast forward through that time at church, I guarantee I would do it every time. Yeah. <clears throat> However, yeah. I agree with Jesse. Ha! Amen. Amen. Good Christian yeah, not, brothers. I don't, in I don't here. love the time. I yeah. just think it's. Yeah, this past Sunday, I actually, I was in a state of health and mentality where I didn't want to drive. I drive a half an hour to our church, and I didn't want to go, and I wasn't really looking forward to it. I didn't want to talk to anybody, but I knew I was going to have to. But thankfully, my daughter talked to the only person in the row behind us, so uh, she covered for me. <laughs> All right. Uh, thank you, Mike, for voting for Jesse. I will not remember that. <laughs> our main topic today that we're going to jump into today is fake news. I've heard that phrase a little bit. And truth. In the epistemic wilderness. Now, that's a big word, epistemic. So let me just do, I don't know, what I might call a four-minute philosophy lessons to get to the word epistemic in our title uh, and why I, I chose the term wilderness. Fake news and truth in our epistemic wilderness. Now, there's two main branches, I'd say, in the Western philosophical tradition, metaphysics and epistemology. The, the emphasis um, being meta, it's the Greek word after or beyond, and physics obviously dealing with the natural world, Metaphysics is dealing with reality, all that is. Obviously, there are things that are physical and non-physical, at least in our philosophy, um, and we want to know reality and what is, and ultimate reality being uh, God, the Creator Himself. We want to know God. Epistemology comes from a Greek word, episteme, which means knowledge, or it's kind of been the uh, branch of philosophy of how do we know things? Well, do I use my senses? Do I kind of know things intuitively with my mind? These kinds of things. And so throughout history, uh, these two things have been in dialogue with one another. In fact, some philosophers would say that the history of philosophy is one long dialogue between Plato, who was very much into metaphysics, uh, and Aristotle, uh, who was more empirical in his investigation of the world. But if you look at uh, Western philosophical history in three major eras, okay, you could look at ancient philosophy. I had a professor recently called this paleo the paleo-philosophical era. I like that because paleo diets are kind of in. Yeah, they, they didn't eat bread. Yeah, they do it at CrossFit gyms, right? Paleo <laughs> diets, eating nuts and meat and berries and stuff. So we're going to talk about paleo-philosophy, modern philosophy, postmodern philosophy. Paleo-philosophy would be our ancient Greek philosophical tradition, uh, and Christian thinkers like Augustine, Anselm, Aquinas, into the Middle Ages. And there was a deep concern for metaphysics. What is? What's real? How do we relate to the world out there and God out there? And how do we come to these things? And now, obviously, epistemology was important because we were like, how do we know these real things? Modern philosophy shifted probably with the, the, the philosopher René Descartes, who really sought after, uh, he wanted to find a principle that he couldn't doubt at all. Like, I know this for sure. And that's very hard to find. I mean, think about the things you know without any doubt whatsoever. And so that's where his kind of famous cogito in Latin, cogito ugro sum, I think, therefore I am. My daughters would correct my Latin pronunciation there, I'm sure. 
he knew he existed, right? Like, hey, how do I know I exist? You ask the person, well, who, whom shall I say is asking? Obviously, our existence is pre-assumed. And so he built from that this grand philosophical structure on foundational truths of his existence out to everything. And the modern philosophical area shifted to how do we know these things, uh, shifted to epistemology. And then later on, uh, people started poking holes in this system, men like David Hume, uh, who then Immanuel Kant said awoke him from his dogmatic slumber. Um, and Kant separated reality into how the things we could know, phenomenon, things we know to us, and then what he called the noumenal world, the world as it is. And he said we had no access to that. We really couldn't know it through reason alone. Obviously, the end of the modern era shifted towards epistemology, the knowing process itself. And then most would say uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, probably the the father of the postmodern turn, postmodern philosophical move, uh, where um, Nietzsche said, well, there is no God, God is dead, he's the God is dead guy, and then also that all uh, games of truth, uh, games of morality or statements about these things are just kind of linguistic power games, uh, and that I can uh, will my will to power on others uh, by what he would say, moving beyond good and evil and being a super person and then kind of making up as you go. Years ago, I heard a baseball metaphor. Uh, guys, I believe I heard it from uh, Christian apologist Ravi Zacharias. He makes a fun analogy using baseball, and we're coming up on baseball here soon. So he would say it this way. If you were to think of an umpire in a baseball game behind home plate, uh, the ancient philosopher, the paleo philosopher, who cares about metaphysics, would say this. There are balls and there are strikes and I call them as they are. So the inquiry is like, hey, these things are real. I want to know if this is a ball or this is a strike, right? Metaphysics, ontology. The modern umpire, the modernist concerned with epistemology said, There's a, there are balls and there are strikes, and I call them as I see them. Yeah, it's, I'm just trusting my senses, my empirical method to see what's going on here with these balls and strikes. Well, the postmodern umpire that we've arrived today would say, they ain't nothing till I call them. In other words, the world out there isn't anything until I describe it with my language, perhaps in a community, create this linguistic world of understanding, and then you kind of interact with it. But you're not dealing with things as they are. Now, when you do that, when you do that, um, it, it makes truth itself, right, statements about reality kind of conditioned on either, in the generous uh, view, the community, the language, linguistic, social linguistic community, or on the person, right? You start thinking about my truths, or we, we, are, we have alternative facts, or this is my reality. I'm seeing this truth that it corresponds to me and what is out there, what is actually real, good, right, true, beautiful, becomes relativized uh, rather than some objective reality we're seeking. And so, this is the world we live in today, and so uh, I call it the epistemic wilderness uh, because truth itself, as a category, kind of up for grabs. Uh, some people uh, disregard it completely. Some people uh, utilize it in a power move or for political social reasons. Uh, but we are walking in the woods where truth has fallen on hard times. Now, the interesting thing... And is this why the uh, strike zone keeps getting smaller? <laughs> yes. You can't throw a strike or... Or is it, is it really the knees or not, right? Yeah. Um, so today in our culture, now the interesting thing in the last couple of years, particularly with the political uh, and social climate and, and, say, in America where we live, 
um, with this phrase, fake news, right, has come on the scene. Now there's always been lies and propaganda, uh, but things, uh, terms like, hey, that's fake news, or, hey, we have alternative facts, right? Um, or even in popular culture, since I listened to a soccer podcast where uh, they said, well, we, we now live in a post-truth, post-fact society. Yeah, you know, post-truth, actually, uh, the Oxford Dictionary declared post-truth to be the word of the year in 2016. And, and the word post, right, is interesting because it kind of just means after, after truth. What, what does that even mean? Is, that, is it true that we live in the era of after true? I don't know. Um, cer- certainly, Facebook has had its own internal wrestling as of late of wondering with its quote-unquote news feed actually misrepresented reality to various people? Um, is it being used as a propaganda tool for various cultures or countries or, or right, left, center? Um, in fact, Facebook last month announced they're going to change their policy so that your news feeds won't be so much populated by people paying to stick stuff in there and maybe more pi- pictures of our puppies again and things like like that. And so even the Pope, right? Uh, Mike brought an article to our attention. Uh, uh, the Pope has mentioned fake news as being uh, being something today. What, what did uh, the Holy Father have to say? Yeah, interestingly, uh, the Pope weighed in on fake news, and he, uh, he said, uh, fake news is a sign of intolerant and hypersensitive attitudes and leads only to the spread of arrogance and hatred. Yeah, yeah. Arrogance and hatred. You can read Twitter when anybody's talking about anything, like, you know, Terrible tragedy this past week in Florida, another school shooting, and people just going in on each other about about various things, arrogantly espousing their either their political views or their views about how to solve all our problems um, without much kindness and understanding towards the other view. Jesse uh, found on, on, on the site Reddit, reddit.com, a bookmark from a library that would help us in identifying uh, fake news. What's that have to tell you? Yeah, about? bookmark that says protect yourself from fake news. I, you know, I actually think it's fairly helpful. There are people I would give this bookmark to. <laughs> uh, here are the things. Does the headline sound unrealistic? Don't believe everything you read. Second, check the URL. Does it have any any odd suffixes? Dot ru at the end or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> check the author's credentials. Skip anonymous news reports. Another one is uh, make sure the headline and or picture matches the content. Uh, so many of these seem common sense, common sensical, but, yeah. uh, another consult and compare competing sources. Another is fact check stories with sites like Snopes, Politico, uh, Politi, PolitiFact. There it is. Uh, dig deeper, follow up on cited sources and quotes. Beware online filter bubbles that show you only items that are similar to items you have liked. Yeah. And, uh, Facebook. Be, yeah, be, <laughs> be open-minded and ask questions yeah yeah pretty good advice we'll give yeah. some additional advice today better advice yeah hopefully some better advice but yeah, I hope we, won't, you... we won't put it on a bookmark though that's right hand out our gospel underground fake news and epistemic wilderness episode <laughs> truth fact finding uh pictogram now I, you, I hope you hear uh all of that stuff that jesse just mentioned takes time takes thoughtful deliberation it takes not just going with your kind of confirmation bias what you already believe takes uh, comparing other things to things that before you jump off. But what happens so often today, somebody reads something and we just respond. We almost even emote to it. Um, Twitter is just full of this right now. It gets so discouraging. 
The question, though, I have today is this. Does fake news necessarily mean we're dealing with lies? Does fake news mean lies? Now, by lies, I'm going to give a fairly uh, tight definition, I'd say. Not very long, but very tight. By lies, I mean intentional falsification, okay? That I'm intending to falsify or, or to say something that's not true in order to deceive and mislead. Now, that's important because it, there are times where, you know, you just might be wrong, right? You, it, but you're not lying. You just, you, you think you're right. You're just not trying to intentionally falsify. Um, the reason why I say uh, lies are intentional, for instance, Jimmy Kimmel, right? The, the politically active uh, talk show, uh, nighttime talk show host, recently made a video chronicling all the lies uh, from his perspective of, that Donald Trump has made. You can find this. I'll put this in the show notes on the wonderful website, VanityFair.com. Um, are all of the things lies? Well, it's hard to know that just from a kind of a rip video from a guy, whether someone's intentionally falsifying. I'm not saying our president doesn't lie or does lie. I'll leave that for you to decide. Um, but when we talk about lying, I want you to hear intentional falsification. Um, so fake news, right, um, it may not always be lies. may not always be lies. So... So we talk about lies. What do we mean by truth? Well, uh, over the years, people have developed pretty simple and basic tests for falsehood, right? How do I know someone's not telling me the truth? And one of those is someone is saying something that's logically inconsistent or incoherent. Mike, give us an example of that. Well, it'd be like saying uh, that I'm not married yeah. When, yeah. when you know that I am married. Right. And I'd say, wait a second. Or, you know, I see Mike, God forbid, around town with somebody who's not his wife, and he's, you know, who's that? Well, that's my wife. What, what, what? I would, I would have questions because he's not being consistent with what he's saying. So Mike can't be married and not married or married to one woman and married to two women at the same time in the same sense. That's just basic, logical consistency. I was having a conversation with, uh, I, don't, I have no idea how we got on the topic of absolute truth, but I was I was talking to this uh, this woman who was checking uh, I was checking out at CVS, getting my four-foot-long four receipt that you get there. <laughs> and, uh, and by absolute truth, Jesse means like true for all of us, not just true for me or you. That's right, yeah. So um, somehow we got on, uh, onto a conversation to where she said, well, no, tr no truth is absolute. I don't believe in absolute truth. And I said, um, oh, well, you mean except that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I was just <laughs> kind of packing my bag, and I looked up, and she had this look in her eyes like, Oh, you might be able to hear my son. Yeah. Is bring a son to work day. He's yeah. in the corner playing yeah. on his Amazon <laughs> yeah. Kindle Fire. Yeah. Uh, and she had this look on her face like her mind was blown. Like she had never considered that that would be an absolute truth statement and it would be logically inconsistent. Yeah, yeah. That's a statement you would call uh, self-referentially incoherent because like there's there are no absolute truths. Is that true? Well, it defeats itself. So obviously that's a test for falsehood, right? Falsehood. Um Empirical adequacy, you know, should you believe things without evidence? Well, you should have some evidence. Doesn't mean all evidence for all the same kinds of truth claims are the same. For instance, you're not going to test, say, the, a, a certain theory of gravity the same way you were you would tr uh, t try to look at the say the issue of love or some type of thing there or, or or logic itself or the existence of God. You're going to be dealing with different things, but certainly. Um, if someone has no evidence for what they believe, uh, you, you shouldn't feel obligated uh, to believe it, right? Somebody tells me that I should worship the pink bunny rabbit or the two white mice that live behind Jupiter and uh, tell me the ultimate truth about the galaxy is 42. I don't have to believe that. And I would ask, well, show me the bunny rabbit or the white mice. And certainly truth um, isn't just pragmatic, but it should be relevant to real life, right? Relevant to this world. 
not disconnected from human experience. So these are good trusts for falsehoods. There's no evidence for it, or this is in, uh, incoherent or not useful. Uh, we can test for falsehood. But truth itself, I'm going to appeal back to a very ancient thinker who did some of the most significant and early work on the laws of logic, Aristotle, uh, one of the students of Plato, who was a student of, of course, Socrates. Um, <laughs> and this, this is going to sound a little bit like philosoph philosophical gobbledygook, but it really isn't. It's just a stating that truth is what corresponds to reality. And this is what Ar Aristotle said. To say of what is that it is not, or what is not that it is, is false. Okay? And the corollary, while to say what is that it is, and of what is not that it is not, is true. So, for instance, if I say Mike is married, 1993, um, we'd be saying a true statement because that corresponds to the actual state of affairs of reality. Now, again, before all you uh, skeptics go nuts on us here, right, we know that you can be deceived. We know that we can have incomplete information. We know that uh, coming to uh, correspondence to reality or truth claims is hard, right? I'll just refer you to a short essay uh, by retired philosopher William Alston, Bill Alston. He, he wrote an essay called A Sensible metaphysical realism, which just kind of lays up, hey, just because it's hard, just because we could be wrong, or just because we have to be humble, uh, truth is still possible. It requires great care. We can acknowledge we can be mistaken at times that our language and our statements about truth uh, may fall short of describing reality, but it doesn't call off the project. We should care that statements we read, or political statements, or statements we make, or things we tell our wives uh, correspond to reality. So in other oh, words, Reed, yeah. you're saying that there is some actual state of affairs, and yes. if, if the proposition we're making corresponds to that actual state of affairs, then it is in fact true. That's right. In fact, in fact, if you made that statement in Latin or, or in uh, Greek, or if you made it in German or uh, Mandarin or English, that proposition would um, logically represent the actual state of affairs. Now, what do we see today sometimes in relationship to truth? Well, we see things like communities of bias, right? You may be biased against certain truths um, because of the community you're raised in. Uh, maybe some racial biases or prejudices or perspectives. Maybe a political, ideological leaning that you don't want to uh, accept certain things as true. Like, you know, uh, if you were raised like I was by, you know, someone who doesn't believe in God, you might be tilted against certain things like the truth of the existence of God. Um, and we see this all the time. We see people tilt truths to uh, fit their uh, agenda, right? Their power agenda or their money agenda or their view of themselves. People do this all the time. And then one of my favorite quotes by uh, Mark Twain is that many times in life we see lies and damn lies and statistics because our culture is very good at using statistics. And you have to watch this because people say what they want uh, with numbers many times. Uh, one example I just saw this week, guys, was a, a sad a sad statement, right, that there was a 400% increase in violent crimes against gays. Uh, that, that's, that's shocking, right? You read that headline, of course, this was on Huffington Post's uh, queer blog. Um, you read that, and you're like, man, that's a tragedy, right? They, this Folks are dying in the streets. Um, but then I read another article that looked at that statistic and said, wait, wait a second. Well, how many people last year died? Well, four. 
and that excluded uh, the, the the dozens of people that were killed in the nightclub in Florida. Uh, because that was kind of a mass shooting, and it wouldn't include that. And if you included that, it would be a massive drop in violence against uh, homosexuals, and that wouldn't fit the narrative. And then uh, what was the number this year? 20. Uh, well, if you look more carefully at those numbers and uh, the actual crimes involved, were these actually some sort of hate crimes as being uh, uh, expressed in this article? Well, uh, maybe one, maybe one of them. Um, but the article is mostly about how, you know, we have a president that is inciting all this hatred and violence against certain types of people. And the article was obviously a political piece, you know, making a statement about more about our president and this uh, author's opinion of the president than it was about the actual statistics involved. So you have to look at statistics and numbers and communities of bias. You have to look at your own confirmation bias. You think certain something things true and you see something, you jump to conclusions. Um, so but my question is this. When we say something is fake news, are we necessarily saying it's a lie? Well, fake news could be a lie. It would be propaganda, right? There's, um, I think in the Cold War area in Russia, they had a, a, you know, a publication called Pravda, which means truth, which was propaganda and full of lies. Um, but not always lies because there is something in the world that's worse than lies. <laughs> what oh, I mean. Ooh, worse, <laughs> worse than lies. Worse than lies, right? Well, about a decade ago, I read this book. Um, it's by a uh, Princeton philosopher emeritus. This is published by Princeton University Press, and it's a philosophical essay. And it's, you kind of might think it's comedy, but it's actually a serious philosophical treatment of a phenomenon that he was identifying a decade ago, which I think has gotten even worse in our culture. The essay is called On BS. Now, the full title is obviously the word. Uh, my son likes to say that the, the, the two letters BS means bad stuff, which is pretty accurate translation, I'd say. And just for the sake of the kids in the room and the kids on the podcast, I'm not going to use the actual word. But the essay is called On BS. I like that. Bad stuff. <laughs> On bad stuff. Quit bad stuff and bad. What's this book about? He says this. One of the most salient features of our culture is that there is so much bad stuff. Everyone knows this. Each of us contributes his share. But we tend to take the situation for granted. Most people are rather confident of their ability to recognize bad stuff and to avoid being taken in by it. So the phenomenon has not aroused much deliberate concern. We have no clear understanding of what BS is, why there is so much of it, or what function it serves, and we lack a conscientiously developed appreciation of what it means to us. In other words, as Harry Frankfurt writes, we have no theory. So this essay is a theory of BS in our culture, and he makes the claim that it's worse than lies, and he says this, for the BSer, however, all bets are off. He is neither on the side of the true nor on the side of the false. His eye is not on the facts at all, as the eyes of the honest man and of the liar are, except insofar as they may be pertinent to his interest in getting away with what he says. He does not care whether the things he says describe reality correctly. That's, again, correspondence theory truth. He just picks them out or makes them up, alternative facts, to suit his purpose. Someone who lies and someone who tells the truth are playing on opposite sides, so to speak, in the same game. Each responds to the facts as he understands them, although the response of each one is guided by the authority of the truth, while the response of the other defies that authority, the liar, and refuses to meet its demands. The BSer ignores these demands altogether. He does not reject the authority of the truth as the liar does, and oppose himself to it, 
he pays no attention to the truth at all. By virtue of this, BS is a greater enemy of the truth than lies are. You know, Reed, that corresponds, uh, not, no pun intended, uh, <clears throat> very well with the definition of post-truth in the Oxford Dictionary. Uh, the Oxford Dictionary defines post-truth as relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in sh shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion or personal belief. Yeah. And if we're only appealing to emotional and purpose in, uh, in belief, and we're passing it off as some sort of a thing that other people are obligated to adhere to or, or, or bow down to, we're dealing in the realm of bad stuff. Right. So if you think about applying it to our times, Frankfurt goes on to say this, the notion of carefully wrought BS involves then a certain inner strain. Because you might think that people aren't serious in their task of creating BS in the world. Wrong -o. Though the thoughtful attention to your details requires discipline and objectivity. It entails accepting standards and limitations for the bit of indulgence or impulse or whim. It is the selflessness that, in connection with BS, strikes us as inappropriate. But in fact, it is not out of the question at all. The realms of advertising and other public relations and the nowadays closely realm of politics are replete with instances of BS so unmitigated that they can serve amongst the most indisputable and classic paradigms of the concept. And in these rounds, there are exquisitely sophisticated craftsmen who, with the help of advanced and demanding techniques of market research and in public opinion polling, of psychological te testing and so forth, dedicate themselves tirelessly to getting every word and image they produce exactly right. Yet there is something more to be said about this. However studiously and conscientiously the BSer proceeds, it remains true that he is also trying to get away with something. So certainly in our time, whether you're on the left, the right, the center, fully free, fully communist, whatever you might be, we see exactly this in our political uh, meanderings of our times. We have press secretaries, we have... Uh, people uh, touting out their view of things. And sometimes we just feel like, is the truth even in play at all? Now, the question is, if our uh, culture, as Frankfurt claims, uh, one of the most salient features of our culture, one of the most uh, immediately observable features of our culture is that it's full of bad stuff today. And I think we might agree with him. Is this an opportunity for those who care about the truth? Or is this a time for despair uh, going down into the bunkers in our post-truth, post-modern times. What do you guys think? Certainly an opportunity, right? We, we, we don't run away from, we don't run, run out of the, the conversations just because there's a bunch of BS. Uh, and so, you know, would you, so would you, Reed, say that fake news, as we're getting it for the most part, you know, through social media, th well, or how, whatever media inputs we're getting it, uh, is this this part of it? Is the BS mostly? Yeah, I I think um, people you know, are it's not trying. Just, it's not just false reports. Right, it's people right. who are intentionally crafting. People are trying to accomplish things in the world, right? Um, both politically, financially. You know, somebody who's in sales, right? He might spin a little bit, BS a little bit, in order to accomplish something. Right. And I think that's happening more and more in our 
public shaping institutions, whether that's news media, certainly those on the right have a great fear that the mainstream media, so to speak, the big boogeyman of the mainstream media is spinning and BSing them, where at the same time, others would say those government officials, right, uh, are doing the same. Uh, And many times their issues are at cross with each other. And we have this suspicion that people aren't really caring about integrity and facts and the good and the right and the true, that they only care about self-interest and power. Now, the, the postmodern theorists say that's the only thing people care about. But others, right, maybe we would be in their, in their number, uh, should care about whether or not what people are saying is true. Because in, in reality, right, in reality, um, the falsehood and spin and deception, either through BS or lies, uh, hurts people. Now I know it's it's easy to uh, jump on social media. That's uh, pretty easy these days. I can jump on it right uh, now. <laughs> uh, but would you say that social media is is contributing to this from in the sense that people are more concerned with the image that they portray on social media than any any factual information? I I think I think people do care about information on social media. I think that the platform itself or the medium itself does not allow many times for virtuous interaction. Some people, of course, are certainly concerned with image and how they look on Instagram and these kind of things and everything is staged and things like that. Uh, the, the kind of rank and file like us in the world interacting on social media many times care, but the type of, like even the bookmark Jesse read, deliberative, slow, comparative, thoughtful analysis virtuously, civically involving with someone, caring about the other person, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, facilitate that well. So you read something, it you know, pisses you off, people respond. And in and, and Twitter, you, know, you can respond to the president on Twitter or, or you know, whoever it might be, so, you know, superstar athletes, whatever. It's just very, very easy to interact. And then somebody says something, and then underneath that person's statements, the, the, the propaganda flows, the anger flows, the lack of civility flows. And then uh, many times the truth is a victim. It's a casualty uh, in those uh, yeah, discussions. I think, I think social media and, and television media, you, you know, uh, I think that we're seeing what, what, um, what Marsha McLuhan and then Neil Postman with his book, Amusing, Ourself, yeah. Amusing Ourselves to Death, uh, we're really trying to say, which is the media is the message that that social media itself, the very platform carries with it a certain reality message and reality, and, yeah. and it shapes the user and the listener and the re- recipient. And so, uh, I do think that we are becoming, as a culture, much lazier. And um, so, the the idea of thoughtful interaction, taking, can you imagine reading something on Twitter and then not? replying until the next day <laughs> or the next week when it's all past and gone and nobody's talking no, about yeah, it right anymore. so yeah. but yeah. but the the very the very platforms themselves the media yeah. itself is demanding that we we have an opinion we have instant it right response. away it's not yeah. thoughtful it's public it's instant lack of thought and you know many times lacking truth like people can be accused of things in our world today and we you know i see christian leaders jumping on the back making their statements about some other statement where the truth isn't even known yet and and that's unfortunate because it, there's another aspect of it too, guys, I think, where um, we don't want to be thought of as the type of person that would support X, so we have to come out as a not supporting X, and then, of course, you have to make statements. So there is a lot, right, that we could be discouraged about. Um, 
But because we believe um, ultimate truth comes from God, God's character is true, um, truth is also beautiful. And so in every society, there is an opportunity, right, for the truth um, and the one who is the truth to operate in the midst of our BS and our deceptions. Now, uh, Frankfurt followed up his book uh, on BS with a book called On Truth. It was published a year later, also, I believe, by Princeton University Press in 2006. Um, And he said this at the beginning of that book, On Truth. He said, at the time of writing on bad stuff, um, it seemed to me like that was enough. I realized later, however, that I paid no attention at all in my book to an issue with which any adequate discussion of bad stuff must certainly deal. I had made an important assumption, which I had offhandedly supposed that most of my readers would share vis-a-vis. Being indifferent to the truth is an undesirable or even reprehensible characteristic uh, about a person, and BSing is therefore to be avoided and condemned, right? He he just assumed like we shouldn't like BSers, but BSers are being quite successful in getting on in the world today uh, at every level of society. So he continues uh, later. This is on page thirty-three of On Truth, and I think he says something very important for us as a culture uh, and as a society. For these reasons, no society can afford to despise or to disrespect the truth. It is not enough, however, for society to merely acknowledge that truth and falsity exist, and when all is said and done, legitimate and significant concepts, say we refute the postmodernists to say truth and falsity actually are real, that's not enough to win the the day. He goes on, in addition, the society must not neglect to provide encouragement and support for capable individuals who devote themselves, perhaps philosophers like him, uh, to acquiring and, and exploiting for the good significant truths. Moreover... Whatever benefits and rewards it may sometimes be possible to obtain by BSing, parentheses, he says, like winning Big Brother, <laughs> um, by or becoming a congressperson, or by dissembling or through the sheer mendacity, societies cannot afford to tolerate anyone or anything that fosters a slovenly indifference to the distinction between true and false. Much less can they indulge in shabby, narcissistic pretense that being true to the facts is less important than, quote, being true to oneself. Now, when I read that to my daughters, they say that's all it is in high school today. If there is any attitude that is inherently antithetical or against or bad to a decent and orderly social life, that is it. In other words, I'm just being true to myself without giving any care about being true to what is actually true. So what are we to do? Um, yeah, so I, I go back to the question that you asked earlier as to whether this is a moment of despair or a moment of opportunity. And I agree with what Jesse said is in that this is an opportunity, right? So for the past 50 or, or more years, uh, philosophers, philosophers have been pushing an anti-realist right. uh, agenda and telling us that uh, truth is relative, it's cultural, yeah. that there is no absolute truth. And yet, when people see something that they recognize as truly as truly false right they're up in arms That's and right. so that allows us to step in and say okay let's let's talk about talk yeah, about this yeah. you recognize that when something is false that means that you understand that there really is a true right. and a false that's a great point uh mike um people certainly 
um, are recognizing the danger of falsity, at least when their team is not prevailing in a cultural discussion. Yeah, you, you simply can't live like truth doesn't matter. Right, right. Because then somebody does something that actually destroys lives or something, and then, then you know, you, you're, everyone's up in arms. What, what's going on with this? And so truth is hard. It's transcultural truth, the truth that extends out, you know, to all of us um, is difficult. But the conversation and the style of conversation, conversation that maybe doesn't facilitate easily on social media uh, matters deeply. I think um, what another, as I think about opportunities, you know, within this culture that we find ourselves in, um, you know, sometimes I find myself in the position of defending the postmodern, post postmodernist. Uh, you know, in the sense that I do think that we can. There's a lot that we can say yes to, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, within postmodern philosophy, absolutely. yeah, right. And, and and it's also hard to even consider postmodern philosophy as one universe. You know, one monolithic. <laughs> and anybody thing. engaging in such discourse would uh, vigorously oppose right. being categorized, <laughs> right? But. Um, one of the things that I've been thinking about lately is the connection in the scriptures between truth and love. And so I think often the modern, you know, the, 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 let's say not the, the paleo, but the modern person, uh, would value truth without really any sense of of love, cold scientific reality outside of exactly. Right. And so even, even in engaging conversations with people and wanting to argue for truth, it really wasn't about, I love this person and I really want what's good for this person, which is to believe the truth. It was, I want to take the truth and destroy this person. And I'm going to be right. Yeah. I'm going to be right because that, and really it plays into the power yeah. linguistics and for sure. Uh, and so I think, you know, in, in, uh, I've been reading, there's this, well, I don't, I don't know that we should include in the show notes, but, uh, Von Balthazar. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He's got this book. Why not? He's, yeah, yeah. Okay. He's got some good yeah. stuff. Uh, and the book is called Love Alone is Credible. Love Alone is Credible. And uh, it's pretty heady reading. But he's, he essentially is making the argument that when you're, when you're trying to understand truth, we, we have to understand that truth comes from God. And because truth comes from God, that there's a, at least an element of love in it. And that love is the thing that, that, uh, that activates truth within us. And so... And so it I do makes think it valuable, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. it and it co- and, yeah. So and it connects with us. It's so I think we have an opportunity to embody the truth to people, to to speak the truth in love, but to but to make sure it's always connected. Always, you know, right. we're we're always loving as we speak. We're always even recognizing that in this 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 is an opportunity for God to show His love to someone because truth comes from God and God is love. And particularly, we f- we follow Jesus, right? Who said, "Love your enemies, and pray for those who persecute yeah. you." And and look, I'm all for standing against evil, living for truth, and standing for justice in this world. Uh, but the way that Jesus does that is not just by destroy your enemy. It's like you're saying, Jesse, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, uh, overcome evil with good, Romans 12 teaches us. So uh, absolutely, we'll come back to that in a minute. Um, as, as we round the corner here towards our, our cl- cl- close of our discussion of the epistemic wilderness, uh, you're, you're right, Jesse, postmodern philosophy and its anti-realism in relation to the truth, we would oppose it, but its insights as to people who will distort the truth for power or purpose or pleasure for their own specific reasons, absolutely, that's an insight into sin, right? Yeah. And so it's not just all bad from the the postmodernists and good from others. It's certainly 
whether their insights are true or not. And I, th- I think uh, what what Frame and Poitras are doing is really helpful too. If you're not familiar, they've got they've got a great website. I think it's Frame Dash Poit. We'll put it in the show notes. Yep. Uh, and the multi perspectivalism, the idea of there is an absolute truth, but there are multiple perspectives on that truth. I think is a really helpful ways way to come to it. Yeah, yeah, different ways to to access that truth is is a really helpful thing. Amen. Um, I'm just about finished with, I haven't finished the entire book, but uh, it's a book by a professor uh, at Baylor University named Alan Jacobs. It's a book called How to Think, and the subtitle is really good, A Survival Guide for a World at Odds. Highly recommend this book, Uh, but Professor Jacobs uh, makes this claim um, uh, in his book. He said this about thinking, okay? This is thinking, the power to be finely, like fine-tuned, finely aware, and richly responsible. We just need to learn as a people to be more aware. We could even use the term woke here, right? Uh, We need to be woke to what's going on and how to act more responsibly. More aware, more responsible. And I think coming at our own thinking about various things we might hear, see in the world, uh, to try to be aware, aware of what? We want to care that what's being said corresponds to reality. What is, is, and what is that is not is true, right? Back to Aristotle. That we want to be uh, deliberative in the process of seeking truth so that we can be aware of what's being said around us and how it might lead us and our friends either towards the truth or away from it, or we would say towards God or away. So, be aware, be woke. Secondly, responsible. What does that mean for us to be responsible in our thinking? Well, here I think we can go back to some of the paleo people, uh, because there was a lot in the ancient world, medieval, thousands of years of history, where people cared about things like virtues. What is it that makes a human being a good human being, right? Um, And certainly civility, how we interact with each other in the public way, uh, and certainly the way we think can be virtuous or it can be bad, right? Bad thinking. Um, For this, I want to lean on a book uh, by J.P. Moreland called Love God with All Your Mind, The Role of Reason in the Life of the Soul. And he has a great little section in his book on virtues uh, in our thinking. And I'm just going to list these really quickly. We don't have to go into detail on them. But first is truth-seeking. We should care about the truth and seek it. We should be honest, right, if we care about the truth. Being a liar won't help us, right? Certainly not a BSer. Uh, And wisdom, right? Wisdom is uh, acquired experience over time of living life corresponds to the truth. Living all of life in light of who God is and who we are. Um, And that takes time, right? You're not wise when you're 17, as much as 17-year-olds want to think they know lots of things, uh, they're not yet wise. Um, Other things in our thinking, we we have to trust, right? There are good authorities, certainly God, the ultimate good authority, and hope, right? Hope takes us into the future that uh, truth uh, and love are possible. Others that you list and relate to our thinking is humility, right? If, If we think we know everything already, you cannot learn. You have to be humble, what you know and do not know. In areas of life you know something about, you, you should be able to talk about. If you don't know anything about anything, shut your mouth, right? It's a, a principle of being humble. And he, he associates traits associated with humility of open-mindedness, willing to learn, uh, self-criticality, to examine oneself, and then non-defensiveness, meaning, hey, I could be wrong here. Uh, if somebody tells me I'm wrong, maybe they're doing me a service rather than a disservice. I don't need to be 
uh, defensive. He goes on to say that we should have an ardor or a zeal or a passion for the truth. We should care about it. Uh, Enough vigilance to stay at study and fortitude or courage, right? It takes courage to live in a society by the truth. What happens when truth is unpopular? Um, Certainly when the abolition of slavery uh, in the West uh, was not popular with everyone. There were people who vigorously had financial and certain reasons to uh, continue a a narrative of racial superiority and subjugation of their people. Uh, And then when others joined together, right, to stand against that, it takes courage, and certainly objective moral truth allows change to happen uh, to actually make some sort of moral progress. And then finally, of course, Moreland as a Christian, as we are, uh, faithfulness to God and God's purposes in the world. So I wanted to close today just by sharing a few things from the wisdom literature of the Bible and about Jesus himself. Jesse, you want to share a little bit uh, from one of the Hebrew Proverbs in the Old Testament that uh, share some things that I think are valuable for our listeners and certainly our culture today. Whether you're a current believer in the Bible or not, I hope you hear the wisdom of the truth from these uh, readings. Yeah, from the Proverbs. You know, even before I get into that, one of the things uh, when you mentioned Moreland talking about the fortitude or courage uh, to be a person who lives by the truth, it reminded me of um, Kierkegaard. Uh, he, 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 now I, I wouldn't go this far, but, um, he said that the truth can only be accessed through suffering and through obedience. And so I do think there's something connected with, uh, being willing to suffer in order to gain truth is, is, it's a virtue. Yeah. And truth is not always the popular stance in any particular circumstance. So I'm going to read some of Proverbs 16. You can really find, obviously you can find much about truth in the scriptures, and you can find much in the in in the Proverbs, in the wisdom literature. Uh, but here's from here's from Proverbs sixteen five. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. And here we see the virtue of humility. Uh, sixteen ten and eleven. An oracle is on the lips of a king; his mouth does not sin in judgment. A just balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag. Are his work. This is referencing integrity, right? Yeah, integrity. And not only that, it's referencing that whether it's it's not just like it's not just Christian kings who have right truth, right? Right. We and that you know, uh, Saint Augustine and on Christian doctrine said, "Let every good and true Christian understand that wherever truth may be found, it belongs to his master." And so we see this here that a just balance is it belongs to the Lord. Um, Let me read a few more. How much better to get wisdom than gold? To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. That's Proverbs 16, 16. In a money-hungry society, um, clearly human beings are better off to get wisdom and understanding, truth and insight, than just to get paid. Yeah. Yeah. Verse 18, pride goes before destruction in a haughty spirit before a fall. It's better to be of a lowly spirit with the poor man than to, than to divide the spoil with the proud. Whoever gives thought to the word will discover good. And blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. The wise of heart is called discerning, and sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. Good sense is a fountain of life to him who has it. But the instruction of fools is folly. The heart of the wise makes his speech judicious and adds persuasiveness to his lips. Gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way 
to death. And, and that's Proverbs 16, 20 through 25. One of the interesting things there is you see the importance of persuasiveness. So what we're not saying is just speak the truth blankly, uh, and yet a persuasiveness that corresponds with truth and is given in love. Yeah. Mike, what do you think of that last verse, verse 25? There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it's what, it is the way of death. How does truth weigh into that? Like if you see your friend running headlong in the way of death, right? We What Jesse said earlier, right? The love would be what to... Yeah, not right. Love a loving response then is not to let them wallow in their or to to lead themselves to destruction, yeah. right? Yeah. But to lovingly show them the truth and to turn them from that. Well, that's true for you. Good luck in your death, <laughs> right? That would not be loving at all. Now, Jesus Himself, right? One of the most persuasive reasons. Uh, well, it's the only reason any of us are Christians is that Jesus was. Uh, we found Him to be true and beautiful. In fact, when I became a Christian, I, I started to believe there had to be, you know, I remember taking a modern physics class at UNC Chapel Hill and really thinking about, wow, this this world looks fixed, it looks rigged, it looks like it's designed, it looks like all this mathematical beauty of the world. It isn't just an accident. And I started, I remember reading a physicist, Paul Davies, wrote a book called The Mind of God, not a Christian, but certainly looking at the elegant structure of the universe and the physics of it, seeing that oh, there's something there, um, kind of maybe worshiping the universe, but it kind of opened me up in a season to really think, well, maybe God is there. And I remember looking at, if God is real, my question was, did God ever show up? Um, did God ever show up in a way that I could see Him and know Him? Um, and at that time, a person started talking to me about Jesus. And one of the fantastic things about the person of Jesus, He claims to reveal to us God, ultimate metaphysics, ultimate reality, the one that created all things. And He made some statements uh, about Himself related to truth that I want to close uh, with today. This is in, uh, all out of the Gospel of John, one of the beautiful writings, the four writings in the New Testament that kind of described as Jesus' teaching life, death, and resurrection. This is John chapter 8. So Jesus said to the Jewish people who had believed in him, if you remain in my word, kind of follow him, obey him, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So the promise of Jesus is that there's a freedom of following the one who is the truth and that truth setting us free. Some of Jesus' friends asked him about uh, the coming kingdom of heaven in John chapter 14. He's like, hey, Jesus, how do we know the way? And you might think, they're thinking, get me Google Maps, how it show me the directions uh, kind of thing. And Jesus replies to these questions by saying, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so Jesus himself is the person in which we find the truth, and certainly that's related to love. And then one of his final kind of uh, sermons in, in John's Gospel, um, where he kind of uh, is teaching his disciples and speaking even a, in a prayer to his Father, he said, Sanctify or set these people apart in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. And so when we come to God, the truth about God actually sets us apart to be used by Him in the world to help others uh, in love to see the truth. The, the teaching of Christian faith is that God is not one who wants to stay hidden and unknown, but wants to reveal Himself to us so that He can be known in truth. And so our hope in life really is to live by the truth, 
love the one who is the truth so that we might know God uh, and know him better, and then love our neighbors, whom the Bible tells us is made in the image of God, who deserve to be treated with dignity and respect without any BS or bad stuff. stuff. Cut the bad stuff. We need to be aware, woke, and we need to take responsibility. We need to be personally responsible to be people who seek the truth, live by the truth, love the truth. Uh, and this is why years ago I saw this uh, big statue of a man named Jan Hus in uh, Prague who basically says, I, I, I didn't write it out, it, this quote says, Dear faithful Christian, live the truth, love the truth, live by the truth. Um, and he was one that literally lost his life for the truth long ago. And so each of us have the responsibility. We can live virtuous ways so that we can uh, uh, not give way to the culture of destruction, you know, destroy each other on Twitter or social media uh, for our own political agenda, but to step back, live in humility, take time to deliberate, and go to God in prayer to seek the truth for our lives. Final thoughts from you guys, brothers, on how we might live for truth in the wilderness that we currently find ourselves in culturally today. Yeah, I like the reminder uh, that, that's come out during our discussion about humility, right? We, we want to be ones who seek the truth, and we, at times we feel like we possess the truth, that there are things that we know that are true. But in all things, we, we should approach it with humility, and I, I love that reminder, yeah. that, uh, and, and the reminder that truth without love Right. Is 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 uh, uh, is an ugly way to yeah. uh, to to approach it. Yeah, if you've even seen debates, Mike, where somebody might be saying something true, but saying it in such a way that it doesn't beautify the truth that he believes. Yeah, yeah. I um, you know, I think about truth. I'm thinking a lot about truth connected to God's love for us. Truth as a um, even the fact that there is truth that we can say that there's that that there's truth things that there's a correspondence uh i think tells us something about god's love uh, you know we just had a baby we've got a little two month old and um so she's our fourth and god willing last one uh but she's great and she's smiley so uh she's the happiest smiliest laughingest little tiny baby that we've ever had that we've had of our, of our four and uh, so all, all I have to do is look at her and smile, and she will smile in response. And, um, and truth is, in some ways, the, the very nature of truth is God smiling to us. You know, it's God's way of saying, here, I, I want to give you this so that you can experience that I'm, I'm, a, I'm a loving God. And that I, that way I can draw you back and so that we can smile in response to him. And so a lot of when I think about, you know, my relationship with truth and, and others in the world, I really want to help them see a smiling God uh, I want, who is smiling through Christ to them. So, Amen. And at times that the necessary uh, warnings that we must bring alongside with our declaration of the smiling, happy, loving God is that God is not pleased with our BS, our evil doing, our sin, and that when we come into the light, confession, right, homologia, say the same thing, correspond to the way God sees 
our sinful realities in the world. We confess that to him, and we see his smiling countenance through the sacrificial love of a Savior who died to pay the penalty for those sins to set us free. The only way to, the only way to see the face of God is through Christ. Amen. 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 Well, thank you, guys. It's, I know we waded in some deep waters, but also some beautiful waters. Now we got to go back to the epistemic wilderness out there. Now we got to go back <laughs> in them woods, man. We're going to go back on Twitter tonight, blow them up. <laughs> oh, yeah. Thanks to Sugar and the Hilos for allowing us to license see it, the song See It For Yourself as our theme song. The Gospel Underground is a joint production of Power of Change and the Bonhoeffer House. Send your comments, feedbacks, flames. No, don't flame us on our email to info at gospelunderground.org. We are on Twitter. We are a dialogue taking place in the borderlands between the church and culture. We hope we've helped, been helpful to you today, and we hope to see you in that place where the world and Christ and his people intersect. Peace.